they know what they're doing. It's that they don't know that they don't know what they're doing, or they just don't know how to do it without um, doing it themselves. Cause that's the way they've been doing it. Or, you know, maybe the product is very good and, and they don't know how to go that other direction. So it's playing to their own strength over and over again, rather than admitting the weakness and, and trying to complement that. So it's, it's complicated. I mean, that's, that's what it, it's very human, right? All of this. And that's where the psychology comes in. It's all very human. Um, and what you see is, and, and that's why I think, you know, investors are, are gravitate toward founders who have founded a company before and exited a company before those founders take priority generally over a technical founder who has a, a skill set and a product, um, but hasn't run a company before, because it's hard to do that transition. If you're, if you're academic becoming commercial, or if you're commercial, then making sure that that um, science is, is paid attention to appropriately. Welcome to the World Class Leaders Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world-class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. Uh, today, I repost a LinkedIn Live event that I had with my good friend, uh, Eric Rubenstein, the founder and managing partner of New Climate Ventures. Listen to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, let me know what you think. Eric, you are a managing partner of New Climate Ventures. And I know your story, but would you like to give us a little bit brief of why you are doing this and what's your, uh, why you have decided to take this journey? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I guess that's, that's kind of twofold. There's the what we're investing in and the climate angle. And then there's also like how getting to, to where I am, where yeah. uh, being in, in venture capital, investing in early stage companies. So, so in brief, uh, I came out of the energy industry, out of the commodities industry, uh, largely uh, was on commodity trading desks and investing directly in companies uh, on behalf of Citigroup most recently. And um, personally also was investing in venture funds and directly in companies. So started seeing a theme in the in my personal portfolio and in the professional portfolio that, and this is going back maybe between six years ago and and as recently as, as when we launched the fund, of things trending in a direction toward investing in companies that were making the world more sustainable in some form or fashion, whether it was uh, through food, through uh, agriculture, through um, climate technologies or energy technologies through recycling technologies. Um, and all of this started coming together in this theme. Uh, my partners and I had been co-investing in, in deals independently uh, for a few years and uh, decided to leave Citigroup to really accellerate this change. What, what we were seeing as a gap in the market, 
or an area that needed particular focus was investing in early stage companies. So for those who, who know the parlance, uh, pre-seed through series A is really where we're focusing. And in that pre-seed and seed arena, uh, having institutional money coming in, uh, really talking to founders, finding what their needs are, and then really focusing on how they get to where they need to be um, to be successful, because that's the most dangerous part of a startup's life is pre-Series A. Um, that's that's the where we saw the most benefit that we could give, writing smaller checks into those areas. So call it two hundred fifty dollars to $750,000 typically, um, and really helping those founders and following on into those companies and taking board positions, taking advisory positions, um, working with the founders to, to navigate all the trials and tribulations of being a startup uh, and also in navigating, uh, developing a product, if they furthering that product uh, through production and growth, that's, that's really where we wanted to be. Um, and we've already invested in about 20 companies. Uh, our strategy is a little bit different than other funds where instead of investing in, say, eight to 15 companies or, say, 10 companies on average and going really deep into those, uh, we wanted to uh, represent the change that was needed in the world for to attack climate change. So that's really an all of the above approach, investing across areas to decarbonize the world, um, and in particular, the hard to decarbonize um, areas. So transportation and uh, construction. Uh, we've invested in companies turning CO2 into concrete, CO2 into jet fuel and diesel fuel, CO2 into consumer goods even. Uh, recycled plastics, so advanced recycling technologies that can take your T-shirt and break it down into its monomers and build it back up into polymers, plant-based materials, uh, so making plant-based alternatives for plastics or for leather, um, and, and a number of other technologies as well. Wonderful. That's sweet. One of the most fascinating, at least, thing I see from your story is you, you studied, you know, um, behavioral science so neuroscience and i'm by the way i'm also neuroscience cert certified so oh, that's wow. interesting right. how a guy that was interested in psychology and neuroscience then he became a venture capitalist yeah no so i went to yale undergrad i was planning on being pre-med so i was i was taking all the science classes um and during my college career so i came from a small town i guess i should say and it, it, it happens to be uh that small town fort myers florida that just got hit by by the hurricane so to anyone from fort myers really you know appreciate and feel for for what you're going through right now we've gone through similar things here in houston as well with with hurricane harvey and the freeze last year and whatnot but um but grew up in this small town wasn't really exposed to business in the way i've been exposed to since um, and planned on going into medicine. My dad was a doctor. That's, that's what I knew. I had been studying science in high school. So, so behavioral neuroscience is what I gravitated toward. I, I, psychology is something that I think is useful day to day in your, in, in your life. Uh, you need to understand people in order to live in a society that is, is human based. So, um, and, and I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed understanding people and, and, uh, and learning how we can be better people and how we can help each other be better. So, um, so yeah, to studied a lot of different things uh, related to psychology and neuroscience as part of that. And, um, and found uh, as, a, as I transitioned my career into business, uh, more specifically, uh, that 
that that skill set was useful in, in any sort of business you were in. So uh, I was in a consulting business as an undergrad, as a as a intern, uh, got into trading. Uh, so understanding markets, markets are people doing things, companies that are driven by people doing things. So a lot of it is very human based in terms of humans making decisions to invest or not invest, to um, how to run a company. And, um, and I found it to be pretty useful. Uh, so that psychology really led into business and my daily life apply still things that I learned in, in psychology to, to wow. what I'm doing. But yeah, in the investing, it's really understanding people, understanding why they might be doing what they're doing, what drives them and investing in people that are really driven to, to do well at the things they're doing and, and have aptitude for that. Uh, look, I think there is a misconception, uh, you know, startups is all about technology. But as we know, you know, one of the main reasons why startups unfortunately fail is their inability, you know, to, to, to manage the people side of the business, right? Eric, we decided to, to talk today about this journey, the founder journey that leads, uh, you know, seed organizations, actually, let's call it seed startups, because they're not probably yet proper organization in actually, you know, a proper scale up. So large organization, they're ready to scale, et cetera. It's a journey that is fascinating because we know how many startups, unfortunately, you know, they fail along the journey. They are not even able to get to a scaling up stage. They're failing because, you know, they don't have a market fit. There is no need for the, what, they're, what they're offering, maybe because they can't find a way to, as we discussed, to lead the people side of the business. So there are many different reasons. So let's start with this. Based on your experience, you know, with, with the current investments or past investments, what do you think is one of the major success factors for uh, founders in the seed stage to become a scale-up organization? It's really um, having a flexibility uh, in the way that they think. Uh, not being too hard set on any particular direction they're going in because many, many, many startups are going to have to navigate to find what their product market fit is and to adapt their product to what the market wants rather than what they think the market wants. Um, and what we also see is, is sometimes there's a lot of very good tech out there. So they've developed a product that's fantastic but then bringing that product to market, it's not just improving upon that product further and further, it's actually working with corporations to sell the product or finding a direct path to the consumer and then building on that. So what we find is, is advice, uh, willing, the ability to take advice and utilize that advice rather than um, being stubborn and driven in a direction, even in, in the way they're thinking about their market and the way they think about their customer. Um, so I'd say it's, it's around the flexibility of thought, the, the ability to really take advice and run with it. And passion is something that we definitely look for. Uh, if they're not passionate about what they're doing, really you know, see that passion in their eyes, that they love what they're doing and want to be doing that for a really long time. Uh, a startup is generally a five to 10 year journey um, for a founder. And if you're going to be in something for 10 years, you better really, you know, like what you're doing and not just be driven by the money that could be associated with being successful, but with the startup experience, which is a difficult experience and with 
bringing that, developing that product, bringing that product to market and uh, really appreciating what that market is that you're moving into. So is lack of passion, potential problem is lack of resilience. That's how I read it. So there, there are, inability to stay into the business for longer, not try to monetize immediately because it takes time. You need to play the game with the ups and downs, I suppose, that, you know, they, they come on, your, on the way. But the first thing you said is, it's very, it's very interesting, by the way, sometimes it's not really about the market fee, but it's the fact that founders, they are not necessarily able to, to find a way to open doors with corporations to start selling their, 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 their technology, their solutions. And I do agree with you. I think that's one of the main problems because it leads probably to lack of confidence from founders. Yeah. Or, I mean, you mentioned be stubborn, but also like in my, in my experience, they also lack of influence, mm-hmm. not understanding how to open these doors, how to open conversation, maybe because they don't have the background, maybe they don't have the skills. Is yeah. something there, in your opinion? Yeah, and there's also the element of knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at and hiring people that complement you or building a team around you, whether it's investors or actually, you know, employees that complement what you're good at and are able to drive things forward. So if your competence as a founder isn't is is on the business side and isn't on the technical side, making sure there are technical people around you. If your competence is on the technical side, but not on the business side, making sure your investors can guide you along or make sure you're bringing in a partner who uh, can help drive that business to, or sales maybe is the issue like you're, you're pointing to, in which case making sure that sale, like someone savvy with sales is brought in at the right time, whether that's initial stages or later on. So it's knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at as well and, and building the team around that. And how likely, you know, the founders want to do that? So is it because you mentioned before, sometimes maybe they're stubborn. They want to, you know, uh, keep going with their own idea, with their own solution, with their own way to do business. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just wrong, or sometimes because they don't probably they don't want to get that team around them to help them because maybe they they feel that they can do you know everything on their own. Is that something that happens quite often? Is this sort of thinking? I'm not saying thinking like I'm a Superman, so I can do everything. But it's right. more like, I know what I'm doing. I don't need any, any help. Uh, some, yeah, some and it could be the other way, which I think you were alluding to before, where maybe it isn't that they know what they're doing. It's that they don't know that they don't know what they're doing, or they just don't know how to do it without um, doing it themselves, because that's the way they've been doing it. Or you know, maybe the product is very good, and, and they don't know how to go that other direction. So it's playing to their own strength over and over again, rather than admitting the weakness and, and trying to complement that. So it's, it's complicated. I mean, that's, that's what it, it's very human, right? All of this. And that's where the psychology comes in. It's all very human. Um, and what you see is, and, and that's why I think, you know, investors are, are gravitate toward founders who have founded a company before and exited a company before those founders take priority generally over a technical founder who has a, a skill set and a product. Um, but hasn't run a company before because it's hard to do that transition if you're if you're academic becoming commercial or if you're commercial then making sure that that um, science is is paid attention to appropriately uh, so that the product is is successful it's it yeah it's a complicated journey for sure so it sounds like that maybe many founders will probably need a little bit more self-awareness of really what, what are potential blind spots that might prevent yeah. them from getting to another level. I, 
And how many, how many founders in your experience actually they are investing on themselves? Try to understand a better way to, to become a business person, to become maybe a future CEO. Yeah, that's an interesting question because, um, I mean, founders generally are driving so hard at being successful at what they're doing that they don't take that step back. And so I guess often what I see is they, they find that along the way by taking on mentors and advisors as they as their journey moves forward. So even before starting a business, founders will go to people they trust or find experts. I mean, I see this often that they find experts in a field that they are already working on or gravitated toward. And then they start bringing on these people as, as mentors or they find investors that take interest in them that maybe don't even invest that early in, in a company's life, but they, they treat them as a trusted advisor. And by treating a potential investor as a trusted advisor, it builds a confidence for the founder and for the investor so that it makes it easier in the future for that investor to invest. So I'd say they oftentimes go down these, these paths that aren't bringing on, say, a, a, a tutor um, or in, in a way, or a coach. It's, it's, maybe lack of knowing that a coach is out there is part of it. I've heard great stories of coaches helping founders. Um, and, and I'd say generally it's, it's kind of in this seed to a and beyond period where founders start to think that they need a coach, like a more formal coach. Um, and oftentimes I'd say the investors end up acting as that coach or these, these informal mentors, um, for a period of time before it all starts to come around where, where a coach like gets hired in. Very interesting, actually, point, because I, I don't believe many founders actually, as you say, they're maybe looking for a coach or maybe they don't realize that they need a coach. And I don't think anyone, everyone needs a coach. You know, you need to be willing to work with a coach and work on yourself because you right. see that you're not maybe able to step up your, your, your game. As you know, Eric, you know, I, I even launching right now a mastermind for founders just to, to help them to in that transition that you just mentioned, you know, from being founder to a CEO of an organization that's scaling, not necessarily for a seed organization, but of course, for those organizations that start to getting grow, they start to getting, you know, at a different stage. And now they, they realize that they have now people, they need to work with people, they need to... Right also develop those skills that they don't probably have as a founder, but probably they need along, along the way, you know, like we said, influence, communication, how to, to delegate. So delegation for me is something interesting because yeah. you know, we discuss about, you know, the, let's say the one man show, right? So that, that, you know, the founder that's just an idea is starting maybe as a co-founder, maybe a team of two or three, but now that we, identify the you help us a lot in identifying what are the attributes of good founders they are able to scale so let's go one step forward so let, let's talk about those organizations that just started to grow that maybe went through a different investment round now they're starting to to hire people to grow to expand what's the what's the trait of that founder is the same that you probably found at a very early stage, you know, passion, resilience, uh, market fit, all that stuff, or you're looking for something different? Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned that because uh, what we do see a lot is uh, there are founders, well, there are CEOs, I should say, that are strong at founding things. They, they are good at that startup 
getting an idea, building it to a point and bringing it to market. And then in that transition period where it comes to transitioning the business to uh, acquiring more to scaling, to acquiring more customers, to managing people, uh, founders maybe aren't as good at that point. And so they bring in a specialist, a CEO that is a seasoned CEO, or they bring in someone to run their sales division, or they bring in someone, you know, they start bringing in people under them to delegate. Um, and maybe they even move at that point away from being the CEO and to being one of those people because they're better at one area of that than another, or they move to being a chairman of the board rather than being the CEO. Um, so that that is a transition period for, for a lot of founders, I'd say. Um, and then uh, the ones that transition to being just great CEOs uh, transition, as you were alluding to earlier, to being able to manage people and to being able to to run a business that is more mature and take it to the next level through that growth phase. Um, yeah, and, and what makes a founder better at one than another? I think it's, it's that ability to recognize, um, well, I think it's a desire, I think on the one end, to wanting to do those things. Uh, a lot of people like this startup, like this scrappy startup stage and they like living in that arena and want to live in that arena and others prefer just managing. Uh, and and scaling and growing something that exists and building on something that is already there. So I think it's personality is is a lot of that. It's not just skill set. Um, you know, you have to want to do it. Yeah. And um, and I'd say that's the first thing is kind of like working with a coach or a psychologist. Like you have to want to do it first. Uh, and then once you get through that, then uh, you can you can bring it on and learn the skills that you need. But if you don't want to do it, if you actively prefer one versus the other, then it's hard to make that transition. How many founders in your experience really they want to become a CEO of a large organizations? You know, I, I don't know how to quantify that. Um, I think everyone wants to, but then you, like when you get to the point where you have to actually be that person, they may not want to be that person when they get there. So I'd say founders, they all want to grow a big, amazing company. Uh, typically, it's not just about developing a technology. It's about, you know, building something and changing the world or, or building something that that is uh, important. And then that becomes something that's that's more, uh, uh, I guess, beyond them at that point of uh, do you want to actually run that company forever? Do you want to be a, a great CEO or do you just want to have founded a great company? And then move on. And you know, sometimes selling the company is, is a decision point right then. And other times, yeah. bringing in another CEO, and other times, it's it's transitioning to be that person. But yeah, I don't know how to quantify it. Do you know how to quantify no. it? No, no, of course not. It was <laughs> was impossible question. I was more curious yeah. about what do you see? How do you see the founders change? In other words, along the journey, if I understand correctly, what you what you just said, Eric, essentially is. Most of the founders that you work with, essentially, they have the ambition to become a CEO of a large organization. But then right. when they get to the point, maybe they might take a different uh, right decision. Maybe you know, they're, they're going to leave, they're going to exit, or maybe they want to have a different role in the, in the organization. Is that right? That's it's a good summary. Yeah. We mentioned what are the attributes of you know, successful founders. We mentioned yeah. about how to address the personal transition. But I have a question about what are the other challenges that normally you see in those founders they're scaling maybe and they are not able yet to build the organization that they want so it's 
there is something more in other words than passion resilience so it's something not necessarily yeah. related to strategy so what do you see in them how they normally struggle yeah i mean as you're saying it my head is is racing to very recent examples that have come up even in the last week and and uh you know, I'll point out a few without naming names of companies and things. So one is uh, as you're growing, as you're as you're maturing, diversifying your client base is something that is is very important. So it's not just per person on the hiring side; it's it's on the on the sales side. Um, if you're too condensed uh, to a single client or, or a couple big clients, then if there are any issues with those clients, then it, it directly impacts your business very quickly. So making sure that you're not too concentrated and that's hard to do when you're a young company. And when you're early, you may only have one or two or three customers. And even if you have 10 or 20, you may have one that dominates that, whether it's the government in some issue in some cases, or whether it's uh, a, a single large company or a startup, you're a company that is a client of yours, maybe a startup. Um, hiring has just been hard for everybody recently. Uh, COVID has driven this interesting change in the world that uh, it's hard to find the right people. It's hard to attract people if you want to have them geographically located where, where you are. Uh, people much more prefer to be remote these days or have that flexibility of not being in the office 100% of the time. Uh, so those things have been difficult for founders recently. Um, and that can that can mean your product doesn't get developed as quickly, your sales don't happen as quickly. It, it slows down your your growth. Um, uh, diversity uh, has been a, a challenge. Uh, even companies that are trying to hire diverse talent uh, have struggled uh, when they purposely are are trying to do that and and achieve those goals uh, of increasing the diversity of team. It's it's. Um, been widely, I guess, reported on at this point that diverse teams perform better and female founded teams uh, tend to perform better. There, there are these certain metrics that, that gear toward performance related there. So teams should want to be diverse. Founders should want to have diverse teams. But even if you do, it's if you go out to hire people, you may not find diverse talent that is, is available at that time in the specific skill set you need. Um, and you may need a network toward that. So it's, it's challenging, uh, I'd say, to, to achieve the goals you want uh, between hiring, between diversifying your, your customer base and, um, and just achieving. I guess another thing that founders uh, recently have, have been asking around is in their growth journey is, um, is governance related or is diverse, like giving equity, more equity to employees and, and how mm. that should look and not knowing what industry standard is having very unique situations around their particular journeys where um, where figuring that out is difficult. They come to their investors for guidance. And um, and those those things are hard to you can't go to a coach necessarily to figure that out. For instance, um, you may need to go to a specialist, a lawyer or um, or a, a seasoned investor. Eric, I'm curious. The reason why they are uh, more interested right now in terms of giving stock or equity to to the, to employees to have a more engaged uh, team and they, they want to retain them or, or is there any other reason? So it's more about the, the engagement and the retainers so because maybe they are scared about losing people given that it's difficult to find the good ones? Yeah, but I think also it's rewarding people that, that have 
proven to do great things and maybe they they need to be compensated appropriately because they're leading specific great efforts like if you're a non-technical founder and you have a technical hire that is doing amazing things that person may be deserving of having that kind of equity um or vice versa like if you need that business person to to help uh in growing the business or that salesperson um, but yeah, I think there's also just having that um, that alignment, uh, making sure everyone's driving in the same direction toward the same goals. Um, what I'd be careful of if I'm a founder is making sure that you, it's so hard to do is that the employees that you're giving the equity to are you know truly aligned, and uh, you don't know if they're going to be there for a long time. They may earn that equity and just leave. It's it, there's no way of knowing these things. Uh, so navigating, it's difficult, but I think having, making sure alignment is there is important. I agree with you. I have a couple of points about what you said also before is um, in terms of expanding from one client to many, which I think is super, super critical, super important. Honestly, not just for startups. <laughs> we have seen so many small businesses. They, they've been, you know, relentlessly just working with one single client. And if something happens, they lose essentially all business. So I don't think it's just a problem with the startups, but of course, for the startups, it's yeah. growing is a big problem. On the other end, though, there is always this idea of uh, making sure that you niche down, right? So you go into your niche and you stay there. You're not expanding into so many different industries because you're going to get lost. You're going to get, you're going to lose priorities. You're going to lose focus and as well yeah. as your credibility or reputation within the industry. Do you still agree that niching down is anyway a good strategy to so having multiple clients but always in the same niche or you're more about expanding in terms of reach for for a startup? That's a good question. Uh, and focus is really important, but I, I guess the way I think about focus is focus on, uh, on the direction the company is going and not have too much of a web of different things that you're trying to achieve. On a mm-hmm. customer-based side, uh, it may make sense to, to go across industries Depends what the product is, I suppose, but uh, to go across industries, and and I think it's it's important to do that. Actually, is if you're if you're selling a product that can be uh, used as a material in, like let's say it's a plastic alternative, making sure you're not just in a single industry, let's say the auto industry, but also uh, looking at the fashion industry at, at other industries as potential uh, customers of that or developing it in that way. Um, if it's a software product, maybe it does need to be across a lot of different industries and, and it's not, you're agnostic. It's more, who are the technology users? So being focused on people that will actually use the product and scale the product within their organizations rather than it trying to push it into a, an organization that just doesn't want it. So staying focused on who the customer should be rather than what industry they're in, I think is important. Yeah, makes sense. And I had a conversation, as you know, with uh, Andrea Kors, so the, the venture capital from oh, yeah, uh, Shell yeah. Ventures. Shell, yeah, yeah. yeah I, remember, I, I watched that one <laughs> and, and I yeah. it very well. Yeah, we had a great, great conversation. One of the questions I asked, and we stay a little bit on, on this topic because to me it's super important, is how much the organization are willing to give space to the startup to deploy their their technology right because we are not necessarily all organizations but many organizations interested to to the innovation side the technology are normally a very traditional conservative maybe large organizations and one of the challenges i see all all days honestly my work my line of work is their inability to start new projects to give time space opportunities to the startup because they are super busy on 
so many other things they consider the main priority for the business. So you as a venture capital, you sit in the middle of this, right? Between the startup and also the corporates for their implementation. How do you see this relationship in the future working better? What can we do, in other words, to make sure that the, their corporations, they are they love the technology, they really implement it and see the value of the technology? Yeah, well, that, that's a very interesting question because coming out of, out of Citigroup as well, it's a very big organization, lots of different groups doing different things. And, um, and even when I was investing there, I was a strategic investor. So I, I had visibility into different parts of Citigroup and what they were doing. Didn't necessarily know if, if things that we were investing in that we thought were important for the commodities group or for the specific desks within the commodities group were important to other areas of the bank. So we had to make introductions to those, those areas of the bank and talk to them about it to see if, if there was interest and what that might look like and make introductions. So, um, so I'd say it's, it, for a startup, they could use us as a gateway, let's say. So it's using a corporation, one person in a corporation in a certain group as a gateway, but they can also go direct to these other groups too as they see that there's a, a reason to be working with them and talking to them. Um, so the, the more points of contact, uh, finding the right people is, is important and it's, and it's largely a people business, right? Um, so finding the right people that have the needs, uh, it may not be through a single person. It may be through multiple people that you need to go through in order to make that happen. Um, so it's, it's unclear, I'd say, whether there's one group, one person, one strategy, sometimes you do need to spread it out. Uh, because the corporations are just too big to know what's happening all over the place. So I'm um, using your network in order to get to the right people across businesses um, within large corporations might be a way to do that too, because they may only be piloting in one area of a business, but it could be very applicable to 10 businesses or, or from a different area. But do you see founders sometimes frustrated because their technology has been sold to the corporate, but Oops. then they're not using it? That's, that's very common. It's also common where you sell it into the organization thinking that you're going to grow within the organization and then it doesn't grow very, very easily. Um, so, yes, yeah. it's, I'd say that's very common. As this is a very interesting topic. I really would like to hear from you understanding what you think about this. So please send me any comments either uh, on LinkedIn or you can send me via email at andrea at andreapetroni.com. You can find any way these links on the show notes and um, and by the way if you like what we shared i strongly recommend that you to leave a review because you know as a podcaster we live with reviews so the only way for our episode and our podcast to grow is by having positive reviews so i appreciate that and also sharing with your friends and colleagues if you think that might be interesting and final note I normally um, summarize the findings of each episode, even the ones with the guest, uh, on my website. And I write every Thursday a very interesting uh, short summary about what we share. So if you don't want to miss that, if you prefer uh, reading, I strongly recommend going to my website, www.andreapetroni.com blog. You can subscribe there. I'm not sending any sales thing. It's just big, good insights of my experience with the podcast and my work with clients so thank you so much for listening to this episode and i look forward to seeing you next time